0: Helmets, a discussion.
1: This is Wheel Life. Legal reflections on vulnerable road users. The podcast where two experienced lawyers who also happen to be enthusiastic cyclists chat their way through topics concerning cyclists and other vulnerable road users from a legal and insurance perspective. Hello and welcome to this edition of
0: Wheel Life. I'm Caroline Hall of DAC Beachcroft Solicitors, and I'm Emily Formby of Thirty Nine Essex Chambers. So, Caroline, how are you? Um, yeah, not the greatest at the moment. How about you? <laughs> Likewise, we both seem to have been struck at different ends of the country with different bugs, don't we? But not COVID in my part. But I think you have it, don't you? I do have COVID.
1: Oh. I went to a I went to a gig and I've come out with COVID. So. A couple of days of uh, isolation, well, the rest of the week and into next week of isolation for me. So uh, it's quite nice to see your
0: smiling face. <laughs> it's lovely to see you too. The price you pay for being a gadabout. Anyway, this time, this episode, we're going to have a chat about bike helmets, which is something I was going to say we've promised or threatened to do for nearly two whole series now. But at last, the moment is right.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's one of those topics um, that you look on cycling forums or, to be honest, you give training on highway code and it's something that people flag up. It's, um, it's a hot topic that people have quite strong views on. But I think today we're going to try and cut through the emotions of it and just look at the, the case law and the, the various research papers in, in the area. Yeah,
0: I think it's true to say that the sort of the legal reality, certainly for uh, litigation for bike helmets, is rather less exciting and less fermenting than you might suppose from the passions that it gives rise to but to give it a little bit of context some of the risks of cycling in the UK between 2004 and 2020 cycling fatalities have increased and it's been about a five percent increase from 134 to 141 but between 2014 and 2019 actually fatalities were falling year on year in 2020 oh, pandemic year, they so increased by 41%, which is a huge increase. Um, and But on the other hand, cycle traffic also increased by about 46%.
1: So cycle fatalities aren't necessarily going to be linked to uh, lack of helmet use or helmet use and, and brain injuries or head injuries caused by such accidents. But they are something that to take into consideration. The statistics that we're looking at and we're talking about here, they don't break them down to what caused the fatality. So our experience of dealing with these cases are quite a lot of them will potentially be from head injuries, but they could also be from severe uh, fractures or internal injuries. So we're going to go on to talk about helmets, but it isn't necessarily that all fatalities are
0: are linked to um, head injuries. No, that's absolutely right. And indeed, when you get to such catastrophic accidents that lead to fatalities the bike helmet itself may not necessarily come into play at all because you often as you say get internal injuries or torsional injuries or you know the terrible consequences of people being swept under lorries and you know long bone fractures and all sorts of other things and in some ways what's interesting about bike helmets is is what it is they are meant to be able to do because the, the realms in which bicycle helmets are to provide protection is quite different from, for example, the protection level that a motorcycle helmet is, is meant to afford. And I think that's a very important thing that people need to bear in mind, that when you're having that emotive conversation about accidents and bike helmets, People don't necessarily think of is, you know, what is it that the bike helmet's meant to do? So when you look at the safety standards of the helmet, um, we comply in the UK with UK, EU adult helmet standards. So as a starter for 10, if you're ever looking at buying a helmet, you want to make sure that it's stamped with the British standards or the European standards um, that were created back in 97, approved in 2012. But EN 1078 is the EU General Product Safety Regulation standard, and the British one is BS EN 1078, which is the British standard adoption of the same one.
1: And post Brexit, the same tests will be applied, so yep. it, it doesn't matter if you've got a, one that's got um, an EU stamp on it or, or um,
0: a British standard it doesn't matter that's a really good point it's if it's a good helmet it's a good helmet it'll stay the same but broadly in terms of protection that it provides they're tested by falling onto a flat surface at the equivalent speed of 12 miles an hour and on a pointed surface at 10 miles an hour and the helmet's got to produce less than 250 grams of impact energy So, more than 300 grams of impact energy is likely to result in significant head trauma or death. So, the really important thing about that that will immediately jump out at you is how low the speed is. I mean, 12 miles an hour is really a very low speed indeed. And it's kind of easy to suggest that actually, in any kind of higher speed, they're not going to provide much impact um, protection at all.
1: Yeah, and, and those, when we move on to the case law a bit later... That's what will be flagged up. That in a lot of occasions it doesn't make any difference um, if you're wearing a helmet or not. There still would have been severe injuries um, sustained. So what we're talking about with wearing a head um, wearing head injury. Sorry, what we're talking about with wearing a helmet is in relation to what um, Emily's just flagged up here, which is the the speeds and it's falling. A lot of the time it's falling from cycling along, hitting potentially say a a, a tree root or something falling off and hitting your head on the ground that's the kind of impact it's going to protect you from if you if a, a cyclist pulls out of a junction say and is hit by a car at 30 miles an hour it's and they're 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 thrown into the road
0: at a similar speed it's not going to protect them in the same way and i think it's also important to understand what's meant by flat surface and pointed surface so for example as you said right so if you if you come off your bike and fall onto the pavement and hit your head. And that's a straight impact. And of course, the direction of force. Here we're getting into physics, so it's pretty soon getting out of my realm. But the direction of force is the same direction that you're travelling in. And as soon as you say, if you're hit side on by a car then your your forward motion is immediately affected by the impact that comes on the side of you. And that that will change the torsional force, that will change the impact force. And of course, for example, the pointed surface at 10 miles an hour, I always think of that like if you were to cycle into a lamppost or something. And so you hit something that is a much more directed force. Instead of it being flat onto a pavement, you're hitting the the smaller barrier of the uh, lamppost. And that would only protect you up to the lower speed of 10 miles an hour because of course it's it's a greater impact force in a smaller surface area
1: and that looks at what we were just saying about the british standards the testing doesn't is looking at flat surface or pointed surface it's not looking or testing for rotational acceleration on the brain which is a key detriment um, of brain deformation and damage leading to severe tbis in these accidents and conventional helmets don't include that kind of technology but that there have been quite massive developments in terms of new cycle helmets moving forward and new technologies that actually try and work on those rotational um that rotational acceleration so are trying to look at other accidents and protecting the brain when it when you're not as we just said falling on a flat surface or cycling into a, um, a lamppost yeah so that's a really
0: good point although the actual standard in order to get the badge from the british standard or the eu standard is relatively low that's not to say that technology has stood still and that there aren't some helmet helmets you can buy that provide A level of protection that's considerably over that British standard. I think it's also really important to think about the way in which or what it was that the the British standard was trying to provide about because one of the things they they look at is a quick release mechanism on your helmet so for example you don't get children being strangled so you know if you're cycling along and and you get your, your, your child gets its helmet stuck in a branch of a tree or something like that then you ha- you have to have a helmet that you can actually get off quickly, so that you're not um, then caught and, and strangled. So that's why they all have that kind of popper release underneath the chin.
1: And the other aspect that we're going to be covering in. Uh, a few weeks time in relation to folding helmets and I know um when Dan was on the podcast talking about streetscape and uh you've been out to buy one since in terms of a folding helmet
0: yes I am really looking forward to flagging up a future episode talking um to our our international um, episode that's going to be talking to our friends in 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 New York about folding helmets I did buy a folding helmet um it I have to say it, it it's a British one called lid um it's great um would be hard to describe it as folding i mean it very very gently goes in very very slightly at the sides and frankly if you look at it you wouldn't necessarily know that it was folding on the other hand that makes me pretty confident that it's rather this good um and um, what it actually does is make it fit really snugly it's a really good fit and it's very good because it will expand a little bit and go over a hat in winter but it would be wrong to say that it will you know fold in half and tuck inside my uh, bag easily, but on the other hand, anyway, that's an, that. We'll talk about folding helmets on on, on the next one, but. Um, on, on the particular episode but it is very interesting whether or not you can have a helmet that will remain safe and and, and will fit those criteria and and how small it'll go uh, absolutely and 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 indeed at that point it might be worth mentioning the Morpher helmet which went flat as a pancake uh, but unfortunately um, on the 27th of August 2020 uh was subject to a product recall because um it did in itself pose a risk of head injuries not not easy
1: yeah especially um it's taken ooh, 11 minutes of the podcast for me to get around to e-scooters, which I know you um, like flagging up. But it's it's one of the arguments in terms of e-scooters and having, especially the uh, the rental hire ones, which also applies to, I suppose, the, uh, the Santander Boris bikes um, in London. We've got new um, big issue bikes in Bristol you can hire as well. For people just dr- jumping on these bikes, having a helmet with them, The folding helmet seems like a solution to have, because if you're just going to pick up an e-scooter on the side of the road, where where is the helmet going to be? But saying that there are varieties of trial trial e-scooters that have helmets as part of the frame. So you take it off and put it on. So it's it's that aspect of why are people wearing them and why should people wear them? Is it because it's going to stop them if they come off qu- lightly on a curb or from, from greater injury? And it's, it's I suppose, the, um, the government guidance on the e-scooter helmet use when they've put it out for the trials is that you should wear a cycle helmet when using an e-scooter. Helmets are recommended, but they're not a legal requirement. Make sure your cycle helmet conforms to current regulations. And that ties in with what's in the
0: Highway Code about cycle helmets for cyclists as well. I think that's a really interesting point because as we're trying to encourage people to get um, onto these rental bike scooters and as we were talking uh, to Riddy on the Sustrans episode to do that sort of first and last mile of your trip um, on on a a non-vehicular transport um, or non-combustion engine transport, um, it's very difficult because the whole idea is you can walk along in your normal day clothes and grab a bike but then you won't have a helmet with you. I mean, I have to say personally, if you were to add something to e-scooters in particular, but possibly also to renting bikes as well, I'd add a high visibility jacket. If you were to add one thing that would be put there that you could pop on as you use them, um, I think that would be the, the greatest benefit to everyone's safety to give you greater conspicuity. But um, with my um, what I found using the the, the pop-up and go scooters and bikes... The line bike, the, the rental e-bike in London, now gives you a 25% discount if you wear a helmet. So when you rent, when you pop it on and, and if you have your helmet, you can take a photo of yourself as you start your journey. And then they give you a discount. So that's quite a good way to incentivise you to bring it along. But they don't have it attached to the, the machine for you to rent. And then, you know, the kind of public hygiene element. I'm not sure I'd like to pop on somebody else's helmet all the time. Maybe I would if I had a hat on underneath. But um, I can see that having it as part of the the machine is quite a good idea. In terms of
1: just saying the difference, um, that was what the government guidance was in terms of the trial e-scooters. In terms of the highway code change, there has been a wording change between the old highway code and the new highway code. The previous highway code just said that a cycle helmet which conforms to current regulations is the correct size and securely fashioned, and it's a should, you should wear. So as we know from previous episodes, it's a should, so it's advisory and it's not mandatory, so it's just a recommendation. But the new wording... Um, which is Rule 59. Again, it's still a should, but the wording has been extended slightly. So it's still got the same bit, which is you should wear a cycle helmet that conforms to current regulations, is the correct size, and securely fastened. But it then goes on to say, evidence just suggests that a correctly fitted helmet will reduce your risk of sustaining a head injury in certain circumstances. And that feeds back into what we were saying at the beginning that in certain circumstances, yes, a helmet will help you, but in certain circumstances, it really
0: won't. So what's interesting, perhaps, now is to have a look at some of the findings about what bike helmets do and don't do and there are, not surprisingly as anyone will know from cycling forums, massive swathes of disagreement on the effectiveness of helmets, but Rosper, the Royal Society for Protection of Accidents in 2003 published a summary of articles discussing the effectiveness of helmets and um, they stretched to, with summaries alone, 18 pages of content and obviously that's now 18, 19 years ago now, Rosper don't support compulsory cycle helmet laws, but broadly speaking, from that sort of summary, what we can distill is conventional helmets do significantly seem to significantly reduce the risk of death or TBI from an impact but they could be better and conventional helmets don't sufficiently reduce rotational acceleration which is what you were talking about earlier caroline which is a significant cause of the severe tbis that we tend to find in our work Um, although more recent technologies do help with that and, and we've got um we can talk about that a little bit more later in the in the pod um, but the, uh, one of the other things is this idea of whether if you have a helmet and therefore you feel invincible um, and this idea that you pop on a helmet and then you, be, you know, you behave like a cycling hoodlum. The research doesn't tend to suggest that cyclists take more risky behaviour once they're wearing helmets. Um, but it does suggest that, that that if they're worn, they may lead drivers to driving more closely when they're overtaking you, as in fact does being a male rider. Um, But hopefully with the new highway code setting out very specific indications of the distances you should leave for passing people, uh, that may, you know, come to be a bit more of a cultural um, abnormality.
1: I must admit, I've never put a cycle helmet on and thought I'm going to ride a bit differently now. I just automatically put it on and ride in the same way. Uh, But looking at pictures of me on a bike as a kid, I didn't wear a helmet. We just, that wasn't part of Mind you, I was riding it around a park. I wasn't on a main road. But um my, I f- mentioned my friend Rude previously on this pod. um My Dutch friend, and he he doesn't wear a helmet because he's never worn one at home. Never worn one when cycling, and he doesn't wear one in this country. But he takes his son out, and his son wears one. So it's what you're used to doing. And he, neither way, he just doesn't wear one. Uh, whereas, and I've never altered my behaviour. I just put one on it, and I I
0: wouldn't say I'm any more risky either way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. I am a bit variable. So I always have the bike helmet on my bike. And for example, you know, cycling to school and whatever and and cycling off to work on the bike from home, I'd always put my helmet on. I find that I'm rubbish at remembering to take it when I'm going on the train and then getting the getting the bike afterwards. And if I arrive at the station and haven't got my helmet, it wouldn't stop me getting a bike.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's even cycling in London; I'd still do it without a helmet. But I think I am quite risk averse. I mean, I think the other thing you talk about us having risky behaviour. Lord Caroline, in our job, I don't think we are particularly risky people. I mean, you know, um, we have a fairly attuned, um, indi- you know, we have fairly tuned senses as to what may happen. But I think it's interesting because this concept of legally requiring helmets, they're legally required in Australia, Canada and New Zealand. And that does seem to have resulted in um, a a reduction in cycling levels. So moderate, but enough to be a significant statistic. So in New South Wales, they mandated helmet wearing in 91. And in the following two years, it was a 36% reduction in cycling. And there was roughly a 60% reduction in Nova Scotia in 97 in Canada when the law came in then, as opposed to how cycling had been in, in the year before, 95, 96. But I think what's interesting is um, that sort of behavioural and cultural change, as you say. You know, um, with Rudy, he doesn't wear a helmet, but his, his, his kids wouldn't think of cycling without them. And as you get those sort of changes go in behaviour, you know, my dad, my mum and dad or whatever, or other people's parents, you know, grew up without necessarily wearing um, seatbelts in cars, but they wouldn't dream of it now. And, and, you know, nobody would. So maybe we just get that kind of cultural pace going.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting in terms of the cycle helmet use. We keep saying cycle helmets, but um, because that's the standard that we're used to. But in terms of e-scooters and... It only came out yesterday um, in terms of the PACS um, data, which is the parliamentary um, safety uh, study that we've referred to in the previous podcast. Um, they've just done their final report with regard to e-scooters. And one of their recommendations is mandari- mandatory helmet use moving forwards when e-scooters are legalised. And in a lot of countries, that's one of the changes that the, they have actually brought about, where they've been introduced into countries and then e-scooters. Then Um, helmets have been made um, mandatory
0: afterwards following uh, rafts of injuries that's very interesting actually yes so you have a sort of period of time when it becomes more culturally acceptable and then you make it mandatory
1: yeah um, but that's e-scooters versus bikes and it's it's a as we said it's almost a cyclical argument that that it comes up on the forums and different things about e-scooter e-scooter use sorry helmet use and uh, whether or not it should be forced to cyclists because one of the other arguments is that it stops people. It's um, it's a barrier for people cycling if they've got
0: to supply all of the safety equipment on top of the bikes. I think I think that's right. And the health benefits of cycling, the um, Department of um, the Department for Transport in the UK endorsed a 20 to 1 ratio in 2010 of health health benefits to cycling outweighing the risks of cycling. I mean that includes pollution, but also includes impacts. And so, um, you know, the, the, the benefits are so great that putting barriers in the way is a bad idea.
1: So moving forwards, and where we are with case law and the impact it might have on a personal injury claim, if you have an accident, you weren't wearing a helmet at the time, it, it all depends on a load of different factors. And the main case that um, seems to be that everything follows from is the case of Smith and Finch from 20, 2009. Um, and from that, it's the failure to wear a helmet will amount to contributing negligence and any liability accordingly reduced, provided it can be shown by the party raising the argument that failure to wear the helmet had a causative effect. And going back to our previous um, podcast about... Contributing negligence and causative effect. Do you want to just explain that briefly again, Emily? So
0: the idea of how much you're, um, h- how much you're wrongdoing has an impact on what you're actually doing. So um, the causative potency, I mean, in a way now in the hierarchy of road users, if you are... Um, of a of a greater body and a greater sort of impact and you have a greater impact on what happens you're going to bear a greater responsibility for any wrongdoing. So um, a lorry that um, knocks over a cyclist is is naturally going to have a higher causative potency and a higher engagement in in the contributing negligence to an accident. Albeit if you've got a cyclist who's cycling, you know, extremely fast along a, on a along a pavement and bounces onto the road in the middle of, you know, straight in front of somebody that can't do anything about it, then, then the scales will tip in the other direction.
1: So in terms of the helmet use in the Smith and Finch case, uh, Mr. Justice Williams held, as it is accepted that the wearing of helmets may afford protection in some circumstances. So this goes back to what we were saying earlier about it's not going to be all circumstances. It's going to be probably a certain... Tranche of cases. It must follow that a cyclist of ordinary prudence would wear one no matter whether on a long or a short trip or whether on quiet suburban roads or a busy main road. In my judgment, the observations of Lord Denning in Freeman Butcher above uh, should apply to the wearing of helmets by cyclists. So that would be a theoretical reduction of about 15% to reflect the fact that in not wearing a helmet, the claimant has contributed to their accident. But in this case, it was found that I'm not satisfied on the balance of probabilities that the claimant struck the ground at the low speed necessary for an approved helmet to have protected him from the severe head injuries. And this goes back to what we were saying earlier about him hitting the floor at 30 miles per hour versus hitting the floor at 10 miles per hour, if that had been the case and it was a low-impact collision and wearing a helmet would have made a
0: difference, then the judgment here would probably have been different. I think what's so interesting about this case is it's the one that's held up as being evidence that you can have contributory negligence for not wearing a helmet. Although when you actually read it, that wasn't the outcome in this case. And in a way, it um, highlights the exact problem that we've been talking about, which is it's so difficult to show that at anything above a very low speed, and at a direct blow, that in fact the helmet would have had a, would have made a significant difference, or would have made a difference such that the cyclist, who would naturally be the kind of lower culpable party, deserves to have their damage is reduced for that fact alone. And
1: we as we also know, Emily, that it's not just enough for as a defendant to turn around and go, well, the accident reconstruction experts have said that the collision happened and the claimant would have hit his head on the ground at 10 miles per hour. Therefore, oh, look, this is what the standards say. Therefore, there would have been a difference. You generally need medical evidence to be able to show that there would have been a difference.
0: Yes. I mean, in fact, as, as the judge went on to say in, in the Smith and Finch um a judgment he says um, i can't exclude as a, or I cannot exclude as a possibility even if the impact was low enough that the injuries responsible for the claimant's residual in- disabilities were caused by a coup injury an injury from which a helmet would not have protected the claimant accordingly i make no finding of controversy um negligence so even if you had evidence that the impact was below 12 miles now you then need to have that Medical evidence to show that um, the disabilities were caused by a contraqu injury. So not only that it was of a low enough speed that the helmet should have protected him, but that the injuries he suffered would not have happened had he been wearing a helmet. So it's a very it's a very high bar in that respect. It's a, both the the requirement of the helmet is low, and then you have to have medical evidence to show it would have been a determinative factor.
1: Yeah, it goes back to what we were saying in terms of the helmet at c- certain speeds and. In certain falling flat on the ground or against um, a pole, versus pulled across the ground, rotational forces—all of these other things that are happening. In addition, you've got to you've got to be able to show that there has been a difference made. So. It, it is a
0: difficult argument to run absolutely and I think um, you know the, the the next case of Reynolds and Strutton and Parker is also quite interesting because actually they say in that that there was the principle from Smith and Finch that not wearing a helmet would be contributory negligence I think I would state it as could be contributory negligence actually because you've got to have those, those, those barriers of making a difference but in that case um, the claimant he was actually suing his employer because he was on a bicycle in a race between four cyclists on a track in Deal in Kent when they were having a work, they were having a work bonding day. Do you remember when we used to have work bonding days? When people used to go out and about and do things? Anyway, so they had three activities on this action packed day. Um, and um, anyway, one of them was um, a, a cycle race. It was meant to be a team bonding office outing, thank you to the staff. But whatever had happened, they'd all got wildly competitive. Um, and um, they, they, because they ended up having a bike accident. So the um, the claimant brought his claim against his um, employer, but we can forget all that for now. Uh, we're not talking for carers liability. That's why. But um, at the time of the accident, there were cycle helmets available and the claimant knew they were there, but he wasn't wearing one. So, so firstly, um, there had been a failure to carry out risk assessments, which would have shown that helmets would have been mandatory for the race. Um, but... Um, the fact that he wasn't wearing a helmet and it could be contributory or would be contributory negligent after Smith and Finch. Um, it, the, 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 the judge found from his findings of fact in respect to the claimant's riding, he was contributory negligent and because he was aware that cycle helmets were available, if only because his main rival was wearing one. Um, and so he didn't protect himself from harm. And um, so it, as he said, you know, with was, it was Smith and Finch, somebody who's having a quiet country cycle if he can be contributory negligent for not wearing a helmet, those who engage in competitive racing um, will you know, ha- be much more likely to be to blame for failing to protect themselves. Now, kind of interestingly, what they'd done in that case was they're having a race and in their bonding, they'd got so frenzied that he'd sort of cut his way through between the final three people. Bit it sounds more like the sort of final stars of the Tour de France. And he was kind of going hell for leather to try and get for the line and managed to basically cause a pileup and a collision. Um, And anyway, I mean, as always, these things end up with disastrous injuries. So it it ill behoves me to, to, to make light and be flippant. But anyway, as a result of that, the claimant was found to be two thirds responsible for the injuries that he suffered. On the basis both of the failure to wear his helmet, but also because he tried to block his competitor. And he actually caused the accident by smacking into them. So that's an instance where... Very much because of the facts and the circumstances, there was um, contributing negligence on the part of of the claimant and and the helmet was a melded part of that
1: fault. Well, you just flagged up there the Tour de France, um, but it's the Tour de France, but also the sporties you do around the country. It's mandatory at all of the big cycling events to have to wear a helmet and... A lot of the things, the sportives I've done, you have to turn up at registration with your helmet in your hand to show that you've got your helmet and you're going to wear it. And some of the timing chips are put on your helmet to make sure that you wear it. And they will stop and pull people out of the rides if they haven't got a helmet on. All admirable and sensible steps to take. There's a few other cases that we could look into, but most of them seem to be saying exactly the same thing in that it all comes down to the speed um, and the... uh, needing evidence to show that it would have made some difference.
0: Yeah, and I think that's pretty much it. So, as I said, when Smith & Finch came out, there was a bit of a sort of flurry in our world as to the fact that it might make a sort of major difference, and um, I, I don't actually honestly think it does. It, it, it sensibly sets out what you would expect, which is just if, if you've got evidence to show it makes a difference, it can make a difference, but it's not an automatic lop-off of damages. Yeah,
1: you've got to be able to back it up, but equally, if it's a head injury case uh, from a defendant's perspective, perspective 10 15% off um, a rather large claim is worth looking at
0: investigating to see if it would have made a difference wearing a helmet oh absolutely and 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 I mean and of course with the claimant to duck on the damages to that extent is it matters to them as well so I mean all, all all I think we should take from that is that it is a um it's it's become a fairly standardized position which is it can it can it doesn't Automatically make a difference if you wear a helmet or not, but if you're not wearing a helmet, then it is automatically something you would want to look into, and in the right kind of um, accident, both the the nature of the accident and the nature of the injuries, it can indeed result in um, a, a fairly significant fifteen percent reduction in damages. So it's certainly something that it's important to look into, and maybe finally, what we should just do is is uh, you said earlier about the new helmets that um, work to a much higher standard. And better standard than the um, British standards, um, um, and 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 there's um, been some quite interesting work looking at how well they are able to protect against TBIs, which, as we've headed, we've highlighted, are the, the very nature of the injuries that we tend to see, and um, against which um, help would be welcome. So the standard um, test, as you say, doesn't test for rotational acceleration on the brain, which is the key determinant of the brain deformation and damage leading to TBIs. Um, But um, there was a study looking at whether helmets with such technology do provide better brain protection. And the technology was looking at helmets that have A, got a friction-reducing layer, which is something which allows the helmet to move around your head during a crash, and B, a shearing pad which does essentially the same thing, but doesn't require an additional layer of material. It's actually silicon pads using to enable rotation. And thirdly, a wavy cellular lining, which also aims to do the same. They're all trying to help in this rotational force. And the fourth one that's come up, which is an airbag helmet. So Hofding, which isn't a conventional helmet, but rather it's an airbag which you wear around your neck and it inflates in the event of a crash to protect your head. Yeah, I've seen seen
1: actually all of these at... um, before Ride London they have they have kind of this big fair kind of thing you can go and buy new new kits or uh protein bars or whatever else so I've seen I've definitely seen the hoof and I've seen one with the friction layer as well so one moves on your head and your helmet moves separately to it so um I've seen them I've not actually tried them but um They say, where was it? The helmets were tested by being attached to a dummy head fitted with sensors to monitor the rotational acceleration and then dropped onto an anvil covered in sandpaper to represent tarmac. Um, And they were dropped at 14... just over 40
0: miles an hour. And so, what it found was all of the newer technologies reduce peak rotational acceleration, which you would kind of expect, because otherwise, why on earth would you have spent all that time and money and research and making them? But they did help um, with the velocity and whole brain strain when compared with conventional helmets. And so, they are therefore effective methods uh, for reducing neuroinflammation post injury and perhaps protecting against TBIs. So, hopefully, we'll see these technologies moving forward and becoming more. Um, uh, available um, uh, and becoming sort of standardised, but the Hovding, Caroline, the one you talked about, the 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 um, uh, the airbag for the head, so that outperformed all the hel- other helmets on injury metrics in the first thirty milliseconds of impact, because it reduced the speed of acceleration. But funnily enough, not not surprisingly, perhaps just as with a normal airbag in a car, in real life impact, it would probably the the force has got to go somewhere, and so it's felt that it would cause a considerable neck strain on the user. On the other hand, we want balancing that against a head injury. It might not be a um, you know it might be a balance that, that that is worth having for the for the catastrophic injury. But there we are. The fir- the researchers noted the location of impact is a key factor, and whether the helmets perform well. Uh, and so the and rotational force remains a really difficult thing. So I mean that, I think that tells us as we know. The, the the kind of the really serious injuries that we tend to see when somebody is hit from the side by a by a vehicle you know turning left or right and they're not seen um, or or they're knocked off you know with a torsional force that they really do cause the catastrophic injuries and unfortunately um, one is vulnerable as a cyclist and and helmets can provide some but only limited protection against such injuries yeah
1: it's the same if you podest- hit a pedestrian as well and we're not people aren't suggested that um, pedestrians wear helmets when they walk around in case they get knocked over or they fall and hit their heads kind of thing. It's the, it, is, it is the area that from a minor-ish, a minor tap, a minor hit can have catastrophic effects on somebody's life.
0: A sombre little note on which to end really but I'm not sure that, that um, there's much else we can say. I mean, it's, it is true. All these things carry some sort of risk and helmets will help to some extent. But um, um, it's not all as plain sailing as it might appear. So hopefully that's a sort of balanced run through of of the ups and downs, ins and outs, the highs and lows of helmet wearing.
1: Yeah. And as things currently stand, it's personal choice in this country, whether or not you wear a helmet, whether or not things change with e-scooter legislation at the end of the year uh, about helmets is another thing. But uh, we'll have to come back to that in series three.
0: Oh, yes, we shall. I will so enjoy more e-scooterage with you. So thank you ever so much. Really lovely to chat today. Against all odds, I hope you're feeling better soon. Yeah, you too, Emily. Um, And uh, I look forward to our New York helmet discussion. Absolutely. Can't wait. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening.
1: Wheel Life is brought to you by international law firm D.A.C. Beechcroft and Barrister's Chambers, 39 Essex Chambers. Discover more articles, podcasts and webinars over at dacbeechcroft.com and 39essex.com